Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. If you've turned on a television set sometime in the last 40 years, you've undoubtedly seen his work. He's given audiences a front row seat to some of the biggest sporting events, and he helped create a show that made late Saturday night must-see TV. Now he's written the inside story of how he did all of that. It's called From Saturday Night to Sunday Night. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. <laughs> I so, deny it, don't do that. <laughs> Are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes. Okay. Of course I will. Dick Ebersole, welcome. I have been looking forward to sitting down with you. Me too. You came up with the idea for Sunday night football. You made NBC the network of the Olympics. You helped create Saturday Night Live. Is there a central unifying principle there? Is there a secret to your success? First of all, I love television in all forms. Uh, can't say I'm a student of television. I'm an addict of television. So I'm always aware of what is an opportunity. And uh, time and time again, be it in sports or news or entertainment, um, I was lucky enough to work at NBC at that time. NBC was owned by GE. GE was run by Jack Welsh. He was willing at all times particularly when I wanted to really buy some big sports event or some big event, and he always okayed the expenditure of that money. The reason NBC still has the Olympics tied up today is because he started this whole thing of saying, okay, go, go get it. And sometimes that was billions of dollars, and no one had ever had that kind of latitude before. You did all of this decades before streaming and all of the changes sure. in, in television that we're still experiencing. Did you see, foresee the, that live events would have a staying power that we've now learned that scripted dramas and comedies have not had? I'd like to think that I did, yeah. Uh, I always went looking for that stuff. NBC locked up everything, the Olympics, the NBA, the NFL, well, half of the NFL at the time. And... Uh, it went from there, and, and, and I write in the book that the two most important things I think in a career and, and like I had are really knowing how to build relationships, not just saying, oh, I'm gonna have a relationship. You really have to go out and uh, get to know somebody well, maybe from afar, and then get some kind of inroad to get an interview or something like that, and build from there. And the other part of it is you, really, really have to have an understanding of how you're going to present it. Television has way too much stuff that's just sort of thrown on the air. And uh, 
I watched too much television to have had that be my fate. The 2022 Beijing Olympics had the smallest audience since NBC got into the Olympics business decades ago. And if you think that's an anomaly, the year before the 2021 Tokyo Summer Olympics had the lowest rating until Beijing. Has America's love affair with the Olympics disappeared? I think we'll have to wait and see what happens in these next couple of games because they're in places that the world, I think, really has a hunger to see. Summer Olympics in Paris, Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Um, I was lucky with my Olympics in Beijing that there were just so many stories. Most of all, my, my young friend, Michael Phelps, who just ran off with those games. Eight gold medals. Yeah, and it was almost night after night, and we had the good fortune that uh, President Bush happened to be making a visit at the time, and he extended it to watch Michael all the way out till the end, which made it not only a sports sort of miniseries, but here was our president hanging out with the head of uh, the Chinese Republic and being at the sports event and you know being enthusiastic and crazy and jumping up and down. You can't beat that. <laughs> uh, talk about relationships. Uh, another thing I want to ask you about are these salaries that sportscasters are getting these days. Take a look at these numbers. Tony Romo, $180 million. Troy Aikman, $90 million. Joe Buck, $75 million. And when he stops playing, Tom Brady, $375 million. Now, you write in your book about sportscasters, starting great sportscasters, starting with Jim McKay. You clearly admire them. But if you were in charge of NBC Sports or any sports division day, would you be paying people that kind of money? Well, you could go back and read all of the various stories about guys getting paid gargantuan salaries or women getting paid gargantuan uh, salaries by NBC during my years. You won't find them there because we didn't pay those kind of things. Why, Why not? Because I thought that the material that we had, we had the best. We had the Olympics. We had the NFL. At some point in time, we'd had the NBA. We had things that these people really wanted to do, and that was a huge attraction. So, you, I mean, do you think these guys are worth it? I mean, how is it that the people who are in your job now that are paying hundreds of millions of dollars of sports tickets? Because ultimately, no matter, and I don't, look, Al Michaels enhances the event. Uh, Joe Buck enhances the event. But I'm going to watch the event anyway. True. But let's talk about one in particular. I've known Tony Romo since he first got to the pros. He's an unbelievably engaging guy. He should have been a terrific, great broadcaster. Something's happened since he got into that chair, and it doesn't seem like he's into it, like he was on his way up. He does not seem to be the storyteller that he should be. The thing that makes Michaels great and Buck great and all these guys are they're really, they're really storytellers. And Tony's gotten further and further away from that, I think. That's interesting you say that, because I'm very much in a minority. I, I kind of feel the same about Tony Romo, which is there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of predicting the play, but I don't really feel we're watching the game together. I'd love to be his producer for about six months. I think I could cure this quickly. What would you say to him? <laughs> Get your head in the game. I mean, you've really got to work hard to be prepared. And he's a really smart guy, and he showed all those signs. But somewhere along the line... 
it's not as important to him. That's how I read it from afar. I'm sure I'll get all kinds of phone calls and notes and stuff like that, but that is how I feel. And, you know, I'm sort of a veteran of the Wallace family. You didn't even have to press hard to get that. <laughs> I was, but I was going to say, if, there, if there's hard. anybody else you'd like to say controversial things about, you know. No, but this is one that, this is somebody who should be an announcer for the ages, but clearly has lost his passion for it. And I would have him in my office often, not to kick his ass, but just to keep reminding him of what put him there in the first place. What's the secret? Forget Tony Romo for a minute. What's the secret to dealing with talent? They, they have to know that you've got their back in the toughest of circumstances. Fortunately, most of these guys in big city papers who used to write columns about sports announcers are all either dead or retired. You don't open up a paper, USA Today or the Washington Post. Nobody has a column anymore about this stuff. So they're not reviewed the way they used to be, if at all. Uh, and I think most people, you know, just accept a run-of-the-mill broadcast as the price for getting to watch a great event. But it doesn't work for somebody like you or me who really want to see people and hear people who enhance the broadcast by filling your ears with information you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. What do you think is the future of sports on TV? Is it all going to end up on streaming? Are we going to end up having to pay Apple or Amazon to watch the Super Bowl? I don't think that my, I don't think either the NFL or the NBA want to be in the position of having to walk into a Washington or someplace and justify having pulled all this stuff back off of free TV. That's just a personal opinion. I don't have anything to back it up, but it's important to these leagues to have a big following. And you get a big following by putting something there on free TV. Your book, From Saturday Night to Sunday Night, uh, is essential reading for anybody who loves sports and loves TV like you and I do. And right. you begin by telling the story you're at Yale University, Yale College, you're 19 years old, and you drop out to go to work for the legendary Rune Arledge and ABC Sports as the first Olympic researcher. What was that like? Well, it was pretty daring because it was the height of the war in Vietnam, and I knew right away my protected status, like so many young Americans, was going to go out the window the minute I dropped out of college. But I didn't care. I saw this as the opportunity of a lifetime. First of all, being an Olympic researcher at ABC at that point in time meant most of your work was for McKay. I mean, it was for other people too, but most of all for McKay. McKay. Yeah, and he's arguably, even still today, the best storyteller who ever lived in the history of sports. He just, he, he pounded it into me that you had, the research would mean nothing if it just came back as a bunch of bullet points. It had to come back sort of digging into the story. And then Rune was the final editor. I mean, he sat in the control room for every live broadcast of every winter or summer Olympics uh, for the better part of certainly 35, 40 years. And he was my teacher, my mentor, and one of the great honors of my life. And he, and one of the keys, and you say this in the book, tell me a story. Don't just, you know, broadcast an event. Tell me a story. And, and the story gives you a rooting interest. Exactly. Why do I care that this guy is going to be running on the 100-meter dash. And he really found the essential ingredient to the Olympics becoming so strong in the United States. He found out that women 
uh, cared more about the Olympics than men did. They loved the stories. Men were much more interested in the results. They were, you know, they were much more attuned to the way they grew up watching sport, uh, football or baseball. Or that isn't what was out there for somebody watching the Olympics. So let's talk about a terrible story at the Olympics. In 1972, you were working for ABC Sports in Munich yep. at those Olympics when Palestinian terrorists attacked the Israeli Olympic team. Take, let's take a look at part of the coverage. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about five o'clock. Right in front of me now, in one of the in one of the windows of the Israeli delegation, we can see one of the Arab commandos who has, on more than one occasion, in fact, on a dozen occasions, looked very much like keeping watch on one section of the building. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They have now said that there were eleven hostages; two were killed in their rooms this mo yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. I'll never forget that moment. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter in Boston and obviously had been following it all day on TV. And when Jim McKay said this, because they'd gone to the airport, and we thought that they were going to get out. Right. I just burst into tears. What, what stands out for you about that day? That control room it was the first time that a couple of us had ever seen Rune totally physically in charge. Here he was in the front console talking to all the various talent. He ultimately took Howard off the air, Howard Cosell, because Howard got so emotional and Rune didn't think emotion should be in that storytelling at the time, which infuriated Howard, but absolutely was the right thing to do. The two things that stand out in my mind, Chris, more than anything else were when the helicopters came to take the terrorists and their prisoners out of the village. The helicopters went right over our heads. We all had walked outside of the broadcast center and we looked up and I just remember never, up to that point in my life, never felt so paralyzed. There wasn't anything we could do. And these people were all our age or maybe a little bit older and you had no sense that they were gonna make it with, uh, through the end of the night or the day alive. They went out to the airport. Basically, the Germans decided to start a pitch battle. Right. And uh, it was just a slaughter, absolute slaughter. 1974, NBC hires you to help create a show for late night Saturdays, which ends up becoming Saturday Night Live. I read the book, I still don't get it. Why on earth did NBC think that Dick Ebersole at age 27 had any business doing that? Well, I think it stems from the fact that a year or less before that, Herb Schlosser, the head of all of NBC, had tried to hire me to run their sports department, and I had turned him down because I thought I could produce events, not, not as great as Rune did, but I thought I could produce these events. But I sure as hell did not think I was ready to negotiate billion-dollar deals. So I passed. And uh, Schlosser came back to me some weeks later. I don't think Herb really knew a long list of really young guys. And so he took a flyer on me. That's all I can say. He took a flyer on me. And fortunately for me, and I think I discussed it at some length in the book, I was outside a prominent manager's office in L.A., 
when a young guy came out who'd been there presenting an idea with somebody else, and he was introduced to me. It was Lorne Michaels. I want to pick up on that because in 1981, Lorne leaves. You become the executive producer of Saturday Night Live, and you find a fellow who's kind of a bit player in the cast, and you think, this guy is dynamite. Yeah, that guy was Eddie Murphy, the funniest person to this day, who I think, and Lauren thinks, is the funniest person ever to be involved with Saturday Night Live. Well, let's watch an example of that. Here we are. To live in a house like yours, my friend. Maybe when there's nobody home, I'll break in. (laughs) You decide you're going to build the show around him, and you had a rule that he had to appear three times in the first half hour. That's exactly right. Because late night, uh, if you don't grab him early and hold him for at least a half hour or more, you're not going to have him. And I didn't think it was reinventing the, uh, the recipe for the magic sauce, but it sure, wa- sure worked because that coupled with the fact that uh, Update, the fake newscast, would usually come after three big segments of Eddie. Now suddenly you were at 10 after 12, and you've done a pretty good job of keeping up the audience for almost half of the entire show. And, you know, I see... That's still pretty much a formula that Lauren uses today. You had another great success on the show. Uh, Susan St. James, who was a big TV star at the time, comes in to host the show, and you two take a liking to each other, and you get married within six weeks. That's right. So then she comes back a couple of years later to host again, and here is Susan St. James. Take a look. Last time I was here, I was uh, single. I had two kids, and I was kind of a hippie living in California. Now I'm married. I have three children. And I live in rural Connecticut with Dick Ebersole, the producer, the executive producer of this show. You have now, boy, get that smile off your face. <laughs> you have now no, been married. She's still, she's still as beautiful today as she was then. I mean, this is a woman who's never had anybody come near her face. I mean, she's just as drop-dead beautiful today as she was 40 years ago. We've been married over 40 years. Yeah, I was going to say, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. How? Why? <laughs> you know why? Because we're each other's best friends. And we're together all the time. And this part, you know, we'll go back to earlier in our interview. We both love television. You know, we find something in the middle of the night every night. She's worse than me. I find myself. I've got to, you know, like I knew I was going to do you today. She still had found something else at like 1.20 this morning. And we were starting to watch a show that probably had existed 25, 40 years ago, and there we were watching it. But here I am, and I'm wide-eyed and (laughs) bushy-tailed. There you are. So, now the story, this interview is going to take a turn. Um, You have led the most blessed life, personally, 
and profession. And then in 2004, you have to deal with an unimaginable tragedy. You and Susan and two of your boys have been in California for Thanksgiving. You're going to fly back on a private jet. You drop Susan off in Colorado, and then you and your two sons are going to go back east. And what happens? Uh, On takeoff, uh, the plane could not achieve altitude and and, and crashed. And uh, an enormous explosion and fire resulted. Uh, My youngest son, Teddy, was sitting about that far, the extension of my hand away from me across the aisle. Um, When it was all over, the chair wasn't there anymore, he wasn't there, and that side of the plane wasn't there anymore. Uh, The pilots in the front of the plane were gone, the front part of the plane was gone. And Charlie, who was in the back of the plane, had been asleep, he somehow worked himself to the front of the plane, and the fire was really starting to rage outside the plane, and he just kept trying to get me out of the seat. And finally, uh, two fellows who'd been in a Sunday service, Chris, I would say, three or four football fields away, had raced over in a pickup truck, and they were yelling at Charlie to get off the plane, get off the plane. The fires were coming in. Um, So he dragged me away uh, from the plane, and they helped him put me in the back of a pickup truck and it was clear that there were no survivors and they got me to the hospital. And uh, the hospital thought at the time I had enough problems with my heart that they better get me to Grand Junction, which is an hour or two away by car. And I went there and I was there for a couple of weeks and I came back and was in bed in Connecticut for some period of time. And did they, how did they find Teddy and when did they find Teddy? They didn't find him for two days. He was just buried under all this stuff. And finally, they, they found him and a really dear friend of ours, a guy named Randy Falco, who was an executive who had done things like the Olympics for me, identified the body. And we were flown home to Connecticut the next day. Teddy was in a coffin downstairs in the front hall of our home, and our kids slept down there with him for a couple of nights. And then he was buried in a cemetery in Litchfield. To this day, I still walk four or five days a week from our home, the four or five miles through the old country roads, and I end up at Teddy's grave, and I I lean on somebody else's stone, and I talk to him. Now, I know he's not going to talk back to me, but it gives me a great sense of peace. It almost brings him alive inside my head, and he was such a Engaging personality, uh, you know, uh, he had a biting wit. Uh, I wish Susan was sitting here now to remind me of some of the really, really clever ways that he would, you know, pop my, pop my balloon, which he delighted in doing. Um, but she kept the whole family together. Nobody went anywhere for several months. We all lived in that house. And I can't... F, uh, say more strongly to people out there who who have lost a child or someday may lose a child, do not shut it down. Do not hide from that. Keep that child alive. You don't have to make believe you're talking to him or anything. 
but tell stories about them. That's um, really key to, be, to beginning to learn how to live with that and still have some of that magnificent presence of a young person who's no longer with you. And, uh, and all of our kids grew up. And now all of their kids, all of our grandchildren, they talk about Teddy. And again, they know he's physically not there, but they talk about him. You know, I know you were badly hurt in the, in, in the crash and, and had to recover that. How tough was the emotional recovery from your loss? I had and still have such unbelievable friends. And uh, I mean, that first full day after I went back to work, which was several weeks later, when I walked into my office, there were Michael Phelps and his mother sitting there. Because they'd come from Baltimore because they just wanted to be there the first day I went back to work. And uh, I broke down as I did on many occasions, but it meant the world to me. And uh, that's the day, the first time I told Michael there would be uh, live swimming in the Beijing Olympics. <laughs> Which, Still the sports executive. And no, but he looked at me and said, oh, my God, you've given me the greatest gift in the world. And I said, why? He said, because swimming's given me everything. And I know the way I swim today, I can dominate those Olympics and I'll make swimming the most popular sport in the Olympics, which he did, which he unbelievably did in Beijing. And um, what a kid, Michael Phelps. You left NBC a decade ago mm-hmm. at the age of 63. Yep. And, you know, some people retire. You retire. You really stopped working. And right. I understand you started all those years back when you were 19, when you dropped out of Yale to work for ABC Sports. But I'm curious, why did you decide to stop working at a relatively young age? I had the ideal set of circumstances. I never had to go beg for anything. GE wanted this to work, and and it did. And it made my life a lot easier. And just seemed like the right thing. And waiting at home, if they've got it up, was probably the most beautiful woman in the world and certainly my best friend. So why not? And we took off, and we've traveled the world ever since. We live part of the year on Maui. What could you do to top that? Other than the other part of the year, if we don't live in Litchfield, we live in, uh, in Colorado, in one of the great towns, ski towns in America. So when's the last time you went to the cemetery and talked to Teddy? Eight or nine days ago. And what do you talk to him about? What talk you- to him usually about is the grandchildren he'll never meet who happened to be there last weekend and how funny... They were, we took them to play miniature golf and their grandmother and their mother, Sunshine, kind of cleaned up on them. I mean, they both played really well, well beyond what I could play at. I mean, it had been a great thing and I knew how much he would have enjoyed it. So I I told him about that enterprise. So next time you go, tell him about our sitting together. And my guess is you'll hear in your head. You sat down with Chris Wallace? (laughs) Why'd you waste your time doing that? (laughs) Dick Uh, Eversall, thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. It's a a great life. It's a great book. It obviously has its tragic part, but thank you for sharing that and with your insights with us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Chris. Weeks after we taped the interview, Dick sent us a statement softening his comments about Tony Romo. 
In part, it reads, I went too far and frankly said things that I do not believe and are simply not true. No announcer is more passionate about the NFL than Tony Romo. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.